Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who has a successful freelance career, but is probably better known as being one of the most sought-after conducting teachers in the United Kingdom. His name has appeared many times in previous episodes due to his highly successful conducting classes at both Manchester University and the Royal Northern College of Music. It is a great pleasure to welcome Mark Heron. Mark, I've known your name for many, many, many years. I'm not sure whether we've met in person or not, but it's wonderful to meet you today and to chat with you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to see you. And you. Um, you said you've listened to, you've dipped in and out of a few previous episodes, so you'll probably know that I always start right back at the beginning and find out whether your parents and your family were musical and how music came into your world as a child. Sure, sounds good. Um, well, uh, easy answer to that. My parents weren't musical at all. Yeah. Um, in fact, my father, uh, who was a twin, um, was so appalling that uh, when he was at primary school, uh, I think the rule was that if the whole school was singing in assembly, him and his twin were allowed to sing. But if it was just their class, they were told they had to mime. <laughs> That's so brilliant. Nobody's nobody's quite sure where where um, if I have any talent where that came from. But uh, yeah. it certainly wasn't my parents. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, interesting. I always try and find some similarities between us. But my, my father was a twin as well, or is a twin? Should I say they're both still alive? Um, and, and so early music, I would imagine, recorder for most people in the UK is the first thing we ever get to touch and uh, make a, you know, a terrible noise on. And then yeah, went from um, there. You know. Absolutely that. Um, um, uh, school. Uh, my classroom teacher in primary one, Mrs. Mrs. Wallace, um, taught us all to play the recorder. And then for some reason that nobody ever really knew, she then stayed with us in primary two. So we had two years um, of learning to play the recorder. And so by the time I was six, I could actually read music pretty well and uh, and uh, and play, I guess, reasonably reasonably well. Um, and then. Um, uh, well, then I started, uh, I'm just going to lay out all my secrets here, Mike. Then I started, <laughs> I started violin lessons when I was eight, because that was the that was the next available option um, in primary school and yeah. kind of scraped away sort of without really ever practicing enough to become to become good enough. Uh, carried on, went to secondary school, you know, the good old days of the mid 1980s, uh, when mm. there were such things as local authority funded music services and the west of Scotland, uh, where I'm from was really an unbelievably phenomenal example of that. So, you know, a, a normal comprehensive high school, we had three concert bands, two orchestras, a jazz band, four choirs, stuff like that. It was an incredible amount of music going on. Wow. wow. Um, but the, the, the really, the really cool thing to be in was the concert band, not the orchestra, because they went and entered competitions and festivals and tours and all the rest of it yeah. so uh, i think i think it was about the start of my second year so i would have been about 13 i think i went went to the teacher who took the, the concert band and said i want to play in the concert band and he said well what do you want to play and i said i don't really care i just want to play in the concert band <laughs> trumpet flute clarinet whatever um yeah. anything other than the violin and he said well i've got enough of those but um i do need a tuba um, oh wow yeah so uh so i kind of went home on the bus with this tuba and mother said what is that and what is it doing in my house so i, <laughs> I went from being a, a violinist to a, to a tuba player which was 
bit of a jump, um, but something that probably has stood me in fairly good stead as a conductor, actually. <laughs> yes, yes, I would say so. I, I'm, I'm racking my brains over the previous hundred and whatever, 19 or 20 episodes, whether I ever interviewed a former tubist before, and I'm not sure I have. I can't, it may pop, pop into my brain later, I'm not sure I have, but I agree with you. I mean, to, to be aware of especially in a concert band where, let's face it, the tuba will be playing more often than, let's say, it does in a symphony orchestra, you're aware of, you know, the foundation of the bass line moving, how everything sits on top of that and how it's, it's fundamental to how music is made. I think so, and and, and that was what I then I, I then went to the RNCM to, well, I, I, I progressed fairly quickly, I guess, because I just had to learn to play the instrument. I could already read music far more complex than anything I'd play on the tuba for a number of years. Um, right. So after after not very long, I, I, I got into the junior um, Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, RCMD as it was then, RCS now. Um, so I spent my last three years of high school going there on Saturdays uh, and then went to the RNCM to study tuba. And, and you know, a sort of reasonably successful career followed playing tuba, a um, little bit of freelancing with orchestras, mainly playing with a, a very good brass quintet. So... Right kind of enough that when I then became a conductor, many people in orchestras around and about would sort of recognize me as a tuba player. So the 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 background of fairly modest violin playing was was sort of a a closely guarded secret in a way. <laughs> and as, as, as you know, if you can then say something that's even mildly intelligent about string playing, when people recognize you as a brass player, then, mm, gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, that's true. Yeah, it's interesting to have both those those perspectives, that's for that's for sure. Well, the, the, also, you know, the very, if you take violin playing to its extremes, you've got the very top and the very bottom of the, you know, of the, of the, the, the sound of the orchestra. Sure. So at what point does the C word first enter into your, um, into your life as being something you might be interested in doing, i.e. conducting? Um, pretty late, actually. Um, yeah. Certainly when I was, when I was studying, when I was doing my undergrad at the RNCM and then, then we, we, the, the brass quintet I was playing in was pretty successful in competitions and so on. And we, we became chamber music fellows for a couple of years after studies and so on. And so really, really, um, at that point, not not at all. Although I was just starting, starting to do a little bit of conducting with a. I think the first thing I did was an amateur wind band, which I just saw an advert for, and thought, oh, that'd be quite fun. Um, mm. uh, I, I guess doing chamber music, you 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 sort of you learn to be in control of your own musical destiny in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> You're not just sitting there consuming other people's decisions. Um, you 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 learn how to rehearse and. Um, between the four or five of you or whatever you, you you develop a sense of taking responsibility for your own your own musical decisions so um i think i i, I think i at, at some point i was we were we were you know, when we were doing loads of gigs we did typically do a workshop for the local brass players in the afternoon or whatever and and somebody would have to wave their arms whilst the rest of them played and <laughs> for some reason that always seemed to be me i don't remember it being discussed but um i was sort of doing that a little bit and then i then i saw an ad to to do some amateur conducting and and it sort of sort of went from there a, a bit so I, I i then you know sort of very slowly just started conducting a little bit more and and stopped playing quite as much yeah, and you said that you you freelanced um, a little while for in orchestras. So, um, I mean, cliche alert, dear listener. You know, uh, th there are certain instruments in the orchestra that have more time off than others. Let's say, uh, Mark's nodding away. Uh, so, if you've started dipping your toes into conducting, I would imagine if you're going and playing some pro gigs and you're 
you're stood, you know, you're sat there and there's some big name conductor stood in front of you. You're already looking down or at them and thinking, wonder why they do that. I wonder why they're doing this. Can you remember any names from those gigs that you did and that maybe inspired you or or made you think, well, why does that work when I'd never thought of doing that? Yeah, I I, I probably do. And, and, and of course, I, as you say, as a tuba player, you spend a lot of time observing rather than one, yeah. you know, just trying to <laughs> be vaguely aware of a conductor in your peripheral vision while you're playing millions of notes on the on the violin. Is yes. So so there was there was certainly quite a lot of observing. Um, I remember. I mean, I, I played relatively regularly with the the, the Halley in the kind of early mid 90s mm. and that was a that was a very 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 different Halley orchestra then than it is now yes in all sorts of ways so there was there was some there was some some gigs where you think oh my goodness you know <laughs> that that's sort of interesting conducting um and, <laughs> how, and how does that work um I yeah. do re- I do remember once playing playing Alpine Symphony playing second mm. tuba in, in Alpine Symphony and um Gunter Herbig was the, was the conductor and I, th- I think that was the I think that was the first time and, and I'd I think I'd, I'd done a reasonable amount of work with with the with the orchestra just before that because my my teacher who was the Halley tuba player at the time had been off for a while and, and I was in quite often and then and then we did this Alpine Symphony together so I was fairly fairly kind of used to the orchestra in a sense and it, it I just realized after you know half an hour 45 minutes of the first rehearsal that that somehow the sound of the string section had been completely transformed yeah. um without without him saying or doing anything in particular but it just it just sounded different and in right. a good way yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so i i think that that's probably the one thing that sticks in my mind about uh, about that when i when i thought well gosh there's there's there is something here that that actually actually makes a difference and, and yes. can actually have a, a really dramatic effect on, on on the sound of the orchestra and was your conversion i don't is that the right word i don't know your transition let's call it a transition from tuba player to conductor, was it a gradual thing, or did you have a? Uh, I've called it a light bulb moment. Um, Hawk and Hardenberg have called it the first time I took a draft of stick poison. Um, when was it? Do you do you think it was a, a gradual progression, or did you conduct one day and think, do you know what? I really want to know more about this, and I want to do more of this. I think it was a gradual, a, a gradual sort of deepening of of curiosity and and a sort of slow process from just doing, doing those kind of hard yards of amateur orchestras and and wind bands and so on and so forth and 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 gradually, gradually kind of working out how to how to do more conducting and a bit less playing and and mm. and, and and that sort of thing. So so I, I don't think it was any one particular moment, but it, it, there there came a point I suppose in my maybe in my kind of early early 30s 32 33 or whatever when i when i i suppose i sort of put the tuba away and 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 started to started to really focus on conducting And you went back to the RNCM and did some masterclasses and studies. I mean, I've written down this pretty well four names there who are pretty big names in the world of conducting. Name it in Pavo Yervi, Yorma Panela, of course, the Yoda of conducting, and uh, Sir Mark Elder, who is somebody to this day. I would imagine you still have a relationship with your what you do at the RNCM now. Uh, we will come to that much later. But sure. how are those? How because I mean, I'm just looking at those four names. 
three at least very distinctive you could possibly say four very distinctive mm. conducting mm. styles mm. even mm. between Naomi and Parvo you even know between the, brother, uh, the father and son yeah um uh, how did you process what was being said to you sure I mean I, I think I I I I'd been doing some some short courses and um I mean Tim Rennish was another another name who have who probably should, should should be in that mix because he was the he was the head of the school of wind and brass and also the 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 guy who looked after the the junior fellow conductors at the RNCM when I was there there wasn't a master's course at that time um so I, I definitely kind of was influenced a lot by Tim in terms of playing while he was conducting so I suppose the next because I was involved as a brass player with wind bands and so on so Tim being such a guru in that field the first yeah. few courses I did were with Tim so that those were the kind of first experiences I had of being taught about conducting um and then the first kind of if you like posh conducting masterclass <laughs> that I applied to was was the Yarvi Academy uh in in Estonia which at the time was pretty new it was maybe the third year so this this was, this was about 2003 2004 I think and I I didn't really I mean I I, I at that point I was totally not part of the kind of young conductor circuit um yeah. I hadn't done a, I hadn't and, and didn't do a kind of master full-time master's degree or anything I just applied for this thing because I thought it would be quite cool and largely because because I recognized Naomi's name because growing up in Glasgow um in the the late eighties, going to the the academy junior department, um, Naomi Yarby was conducting the SNO on Saturday nights. So those yeah. those were the first um, professional orchestral concerts that I I ever went to um, as an audience member. So I kind of spotted that name and thought, oh, that's quite interesting. So I applied for it and somehow or other got in. Goodness knows how. Um, <laughs> turned up uh, in Estonia. Um, you know, not that long after the the demise of of the Soviet times and so yeah. on, and you know that was a kind of life experience in itself. Sort of flying into Tallinn and and working your way on the bus to to uh, this little seaside resort called Pernu, um, where David Oystra had a had a had a holiday home. Um, and there was a the previous year, uh, Nimi had been doing this course and he'd, he'd been very ill he had a heart attack uh during the master class was airlifted to helsinki and operated on blah 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 it was all very serious wow. um and they'd, they'd called the organizers had called yorma just to see if he would happen to be at home and he said yeah sure i'll be there tomorrow so yeah. he'd kind of come in and and sort of saved the week and then that following year when i was there that was the first time that pavel was there with Naomi, and they also invited yorma because they felt that you know they should thank him for for helping yeah. out the year before so we had this incredible three-week masterclass with four different orchestras five at least five different programs being taught every day by Naomi Pavo and, and Yorma and, and I mean I was so incredibly fortunate when I look back on it now to to have had that experience and that really um you know that's those three weeks were what formed my ideas about what conducting is and and also how how it can be how it can be taught um yes quite you know as you say so incredibly different you know Yorma who and, and then I you know I then went back to Estonia a few times after that I did some other mass classes with Yorma um in other places so you know you go from you know Yorma who's incredibly practical you know it's all about just you know one goes down the upbeat goes up downbeat goes down don't yeah. confuse the orchestra you know very incredibly practical um all about the knowledge of the score you had Naomi who was this sort of um a kind of old school russian training he studied in in moscow with rabinovich and people like this and had this unbelievable ability to control an orchestra by doing almost nothing um, <laughs> yeah and yeah. then you had pavel who had um obviously had his father's 
influence, but yes. also uh, because they when they emigrated, um, sorry, defected to the to the West, um, and then ended up in the US. So I think I think Pablo was something like fifteen or sixteen when they left yeah. Estonia. Um, so he had so his kind of education as a as a as a student um was in the us so he had this this influence from there and he also had this wonderful ability to um to come up to you and say oh yeah do you know when when my father was saying or showing you this early what er, earlier on what he really meant was this you know and he, could kind of, <laughs> he could kind of translate yeah. <laughs> what yeah, his yeah. father was, was yeah. trying to say so um yeah those that was an, an extraordinary time really um and you know, probably the most the most important influence on me and in, in in everything that I do now. I think. Well, I I mean, I I've spent similar to you two or three weeks with Yorma Pandler in St Petersburg, and was lucky enough to count those as very formative experiences. On the recommendation of Zachary Ormo, who said, "Look, you can conduct, but you, you don't really know. It's time to to you know stop the arms and legs thrashing around like a speared octopus and try and you know contain it all." What's interesting about what you did there was that you've got probably three different styles mm. um and and it almost forces you to take what you can from one and apply it to you and see how it is affected by another and applied to you and so you're already having to think about your own body and the consequences of what you do with your hands and arms um you know from the simplicity of 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 uh, Yorma, as you said, it is very practical, isn't it? You know, one goes one goes down. Make sure your cross beats are clear because the people to the sides of the stage need to see your cross beats. All of those things. Don't bend your knees. Don't bounce up and down. Um, to you know, uh, then um, you know you're then building layers on top of that, aren't you? Um, it's interesting. Before we go on, or before you answer that, you made me think of you know, Pavo had influences from his father. When I studied with Yorma, I was there with Ken David Mazur who's now mm. got a very flour flourishing career mm. in the States, mm. Mm. son of Kurt. The first time he conducted, all of us conductors looked at each other in, in the auditorium and said, it's just like his father. There were so many mannerisms. I bet you he didn't even think about it. But it was very, very, very clear who his father was. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And, and you could probably, I don't know, I think with Naomi and Parvo, you, pr you probably have to you probably have to look beneath the surface a bit to see the connections. Um, yeah. Because yeah. they are, in a way, they are they are quite different. But I, I mean, what one particular moment that I remember from that first time there was um, Brahms, second movement of Brahms one, um, with a, a professional orchestra, the, the local professional orchestra, um, and I, I sort of started off, and and you know after four or five measures or something i sort of felt this this presence behind me <laughs> these two arms came round and took hold of my hands and it was Naomi, yeah. and he just proceeded to and i thought i'm not quite sure what i meant to do here but i'll just go with the flow you know um and he we, he he went all the way to the end of, of of that movement um without saying anything and just basically just took control of my heart my hands and my arms um and i was just standing there thinking oh my gosh you can actually control an orchestra by doing by doing you know that much by doing yes. that little yes um, yes yeah. so that's sort of kind of extreme example and I, i'm i'm you know I, I would never i don't think i'd ever do that myself in my in my own teaching but but it, you know as a as an example of what's possible that was that was kind of quite quite extraordinary way of just showing the possibilities and experiencing that yeah. and then as you say Yorma was was totally practical and um and Pavel was was sort of somehow different again and and brought in all his all his ideas of uh the work that he did with um still does in Bremen with the yeah. Deutsche Kammerfamilie and and the the 
the historically informed um, influence together with modern instruments and all that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a really, it was a very sort of heady mix. Mm. <laughs> and uh, when, when I tell people about it now that maybe, you know, a lot of my, I also of course recommend to my students that they go and apply for that masterclass. Um, and when I, when I tell them what it was like in those days, they're like, Oh my God. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. not, 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 not quite as fortunate um, in, in just in that kind of mix of people now, but it's um, it was a great experience. I applied and didn't get in. I wanted to go as well. I never went. Um, I'm going to chuck in another name. And and on the surface, at least, his conducting style seems quite different from Yorma and the and the Yervies. And that's Sir Colin Davis. And you you did some, you went on the mentoring scheme with the London, or mentoring program with the London Symphony Orchestra and Sir Colin Davis. Mm-hmm. And I know from previous people I've spoken to that, uh, you know, he very sort of um, thinking style of teaching, or not even teaching, but sort of mentoring and commenting. And uh, how was he? Did he did he get involved with technique, or was it much more to do with the mentorship and the thinking about the music and the and the approach to conducting? It was a bit more. It was a bit more, a bit more of the latter, a bit more of the mentoring. Um, yeah. And that was um, again, that's a scheme that's changed very much um from from those days in you know, 2006 or something whatever that was um but in in at the time it was a it was a couple of sessions conducting the orchestra which of course is amazing to conduct the LSO um and then a lot of rehearsal visits um and it was just at the time when Colin was finishing and and Gergiev was starting so there was there was kind of contact with, with with the two of them and the opportunity to watch both of them um both of them working in their extremely yeah, yeah. <laughs> extremely <laughs> contrasting extremely contrasting ways um but yeah, I mean, he was he was incredibly generous and very, very positive and very lovely, of course, but also yeah. very very questioning, you know, and 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 very, you know, would would ask what on the on on the surface would appear to be a, a quite a kind of gentle question, but then you realise that he's actually challenging, <laughs> challenging yeah. your your decisions and what he's just seen you seen you do um, in, incredibly carefully. Um, I think the thing that I remember about that most of all was the first session with the orchestra. Um, it was a kind of public masterclass type thing, and it was it was Leonora number three, and uh, I, I kind of looked up and saw Rod Frank sitting in the first trumpet chair, and thought, oh, well, it's not Morris Murphy, but never mind, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the the Austage trumpet starts, and it's like that's Morris. That's Morris. <laughs> so as a, <laughs> yeah, as yeah, a yeah. kind of as a kind of brass geek, um, conducting um, uh, Rod Frank's playing first trumpet and Morris playing off stage, and in Leonora was 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 quite fun. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And yeah, you would definitely be a brass geek to spot it's Morris Murphy's. I, I'd have spotted it as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I think you know, at, at that stage when I was, you know, I, I was quite young and I was I was kind of just beginning really as a conductor. Um, the, the the biggest thing that I took from that experience was that even when you're conducting an orchestra like the LSO, um, in relatively standard repertoire, there was still things in my mind that I wanted to say. Um, and that gave me a huge amount of confidence because that's a really difficult thing for a young conductor, isn't it? You know, what what happens if I stand up there in front of a great orchestra and and I don't have anything to say? Um, so I, I think I got a lot of confidence from from the fact that even though it was the LSO and by far the greatest orchestra I'd, I'd conducted at that point, um, there was there was still things that I was kind of hearing or noticing and wanting to change or or adjust and and you know and, and not not absolutely everything was perfect the first time through <laughs> most absolutely, of it was yeah, but, but yeah. not absolutely everything so you know that was that was nice actually yeah no it's true I remember Andres Nelson saying to me when he'd been to I think he'd been there for the uh, the first time to Berlin Philharmonic and he said you know the most important thing is that you've got to go in with ideas and you've got to go in and you've got to be ready to 
to work and to challenge them. Yeah, they may be considered the greatest orchestra on the planet, but they want to work and they want to hear your ideas. And they, they booked you because they want to hear your musical ideas. And that's really important. And as you said, you know, I've stood in front of, I don't know, 40 professional orchestras, 35, 40. And as you say, nothing is perfect the first time through. And, and there will be corners. They really need your help to rehearse them. And there will be moments when their default way of playing it is the opposite to how you want it to be. And, and that's yeah. the whole point. As long as you listen hard enough to what's coming back at you and, and how that is interacting with you, well, then there's always something you can say and there's always somewhere you can go with it. And that's the mm, point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I remember one very famous conductor. I will not mention who it is when I was playing in the CBSO, who was rather young. I'm sure I overheard him after we played through a, a great piece of standard repertoire that to, the CBSO could play backwards. He turned to the leader and said, what do I do now? <laughs> and I remember, I remember thinking, it's a good job that I'm sitting near the front and only a few of us heard you say that. <laughs> you, you, you finish early. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You finish, yeah, send us home early. We can be on the golf course by 2.30. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so I think, you know, in those kind of studying studying period, if you like learning periods, uh, you know, those names were hugely influential. And then, you know, as I started to, to be more involved at the RNCM with conducting projects and teaching. Um, of course, Sir Mark has, has been a, uh, a huge, huge mm. figure in, in, in that. And, um, you know, I, the, when, when you sit there realizing that it's part of your job to sit and watch while he talks through a score of Elgar one or, or teaches a, a class or, or walks with the orchestra or something, then it's like, well, I'm being paid to do this. This is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so his, his, I mean, I, I think what I took most or what I, still, what I still do take so much with Mark is, is it's just the importance of the quality of your ear. Um, yeah. yeah. And when he, when he talks about how every day he tries to make his ear a little bit better than it, than it was the day before, then, you know, in, in the, well into his seventies, you know, that's a, that's an impressive, uh, impressive thing to aspire to. Teaching is one question in a way. I, I want to hover on on guest conducting and because mm -hmm. it's something I would imagine you also have to teach to your students about. So I'm going to sort of link the two in. Uh, I mean, often when we first make our tentative steps out into our conducting careers, at whatever stage of our life, you know, mine was, I was well into my 30s when it sort of started to happen. Others are doing it in their early 20s and you know, you've been teaching them and mentoring them at, at that point. We don't get a choice of what we conduct when we go and guest conduct, but we're all we all stand in front of that orchestra, whoever it might be, on a Monday morning and put a beat down and have no idea when it's going to come back, the sound or how, or how they're going to respond to you. So, I mean, in those early days when you were going and guest conducting, did you have any strategies for coping with that? And then are there any that you pass on to your students now to say, you know, be aware of this? Try not to do that. Try not to say that this too soon. Or, you know, what sort of things do you can you pass on from your own experiences? Sure. Um, I think I think one of the things that I become increasingly aware of is is how incredibly different that is in different countries of the world. You Absolutely. Know, the, yeah. The, the yeah. culture difference between working with a British professional orchestra and a German professional orchestra is is really vast, actually. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure in a moment, you know, our, our 
our class is is extremely international um and and that's one of the very kind of interesting things is 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 kind of comparing and contrasting and thinking about all those all, all those different cultures um but certainly if one's talking about british orchestras then of course it's it's keep your mouth shut and conduct <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true <laughs> um yeah. don't 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 stop too early um yeah. You know, play and 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 think think while you're playing. Um, I, I think I probably talk quite a lot to them on a on a kind of first date, if you like, about finding a balance between. Of co- I mean, of course, you can't conduct as if it's the concert on Monday morning because no. they'll just say, "Why are you conducting like as a concert? It's Monday morning." Um, on the other hand, if you're if you're too neutral and too calm, then they'll just think you're boring. Um, yeah. So how how do you? And this is probably quite repertoire dependent, but I, th- I think. You know, I've often heard feedback from from orchestras um, saying, "Oh, um, if if only we knew that 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 the conductor was that interesting, we'd have tried a bit harder." But he didn't, he or she didn't show us that until the gig. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. I think that's one of the big differences between going somewhere for the first time and going back when there's an established relationship. You know, when you when you've had a couple of successful um, events and, and and they ask you back, you can you can kind of go into work mode and be quite neutral and and quite calm, and they know that it's going to be good in the concert if it's the mm. first time at, at some point fairly near the start of the process you probably need to show them a, a a little sense of of what you can do when it comes to it mm. without going kind of full-on concert mode so I, I think that i think that's probably one thing that we that we do kind of quite regularly regularly talk about um i, I also try to encourage them to 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 find you know you know, we all, it's such an international world that we live in. We're, we're all so connected with each other. Um, you know, everybody probably is only a couple of Facebook friends away from somebody in every orchestra. Um, so so you know, trying trying to find out a little bit about uh, about that orchestra and how they like to work and um, whether they're in a, in a in a in a good place or not. Um, a bit sort of background research as to how they like to work is 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 quite important. But yeah, probably those would be the, the main things. Very interesting you talking about, and I'm going to take it back a couple of questions or a few comments ago, about how much to conduct or to show or in that first instance. Um, I remember when Zachary Oromo left the CBSO in 2008. By then, he'd made me assistant conductor, and, and we had a very good relationship as friends. And I had a burning question I had to ask him, and, it, and I, I took him out for a, a pint, and we sat down, and I, you know, and then I said, I've got it with this one question. I said, Yorma teaches you to conduct. He prefers you with no baton. You know the famous comment, "Why have one baton when I have ten batons?" Um, yet, if I list all of his pupil, great pupils who've made it, you know, Mika Frank, Hannah Lindu, um, Susanna Malki, you, Yokope, uh, or, or, or you all have a, a baton normally quite long, and you all have, all have quite a large florid beat. Uh, why? And he said, in the end, we, I think we probably all realised that in those first five minutes to 30 minutes with an orchestra, you have to show something of yourself. And just doing the simple things of down, across, up, with simple up and down gestures with the left hand doesn't do it. And so you, we have, well, whilst we have those abilities in, in our bodies to do that clarity, you have to show something of yourself at the start of a guest conducting period when you go for the first time on a blind date or on a first date. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true that, yeah, whilst, you know, you don't want to be conduct- conducting full-on concert mode on a Monday morning, 
But if you just sit there and just put the beats down and then turn it on in the show, they think, well, he was lazy for two days. Why did why did he do that? And then suddenly turn it on in the concert and expect us to, you know. I think if you, you have to give something of yourself for them to give something of themselves back in the rehearsal process. Uh, absolutely, 100%. And that's yeah. that's one of the, you know, there are, there are many, what, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot with, with the students is the difference between conducting amateurs and and students and, and youth groups and professional groups um, yeah. because of course you can only you can only really learn what it is to conduct a professional orchestra by conducting a professional orchestra um, and and you know if you're conducting a youth orchestra an amateur orchestra generally speaking everybody's there because they want to be and they're having a quite a good time hopefully <laughs> um, yeah yeah and there's a you know there's it, it, it is possible that there's more energy coming from the players than there is from the conductor whereas of course in a professional situation that will never be the case and yeah. the professional players will, will never give more energy than than the conductor is and of course that can be quite hard if you're if you're putting it out there um you know even at kind of 85 percent if not 95 in a rehearsal and and there's nothing coming back at you mm. um and sort of learning to deal with that i think is i think is a, a, a an important thing but yeah you're, you're absolutely right you have to you have to do something um yes. but i think i think the i mean i think one of one of yorma's sort of geniuses in a sense and something that i i really try to carry through is um i i always felt with yorma that he would Particularly once I'd worked with him a little bit, and and maybe I was at a masterclass somewhere, um, and there was somebody there for the first time. He, he would, his his first sort of thing, his first way of testing somebody out would be to tell them a couple of things that he he felt they should stop doing. Yes, um, and then if they could come back the next day showing that they were able to get rid of something, you know, bending knees or whatever it might be, mm. um, then he then he would start to get a little bit interested, and he would start to start to start to give things. So I, th I think that process of of cleaning everything away and and making it kind of super minimal and super efficient and and very clear and so on is 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 a sort of creating a situation from which the individual can then grow. Um, that, that is so than, true. Yeah. Rather than sort of just allowing what what's there naturally to to, to continue, I think. Um, mm. So yeah, I think I think I, I think I'd probably do that as well. <laughs> I, it's so true. It's it, it's exactly the reason why Zachary sent me to him. Because I, I, I will openly say I was like a speared octopus. There were tentacles and arms going in all directions. And during that time with Yorma, he did. You know, I remember the first thing I started to conduct uh, was the third movement of Shostakovich one. A beautiful oboe solo, very, very quiet. And he, I gave this big up beast. No, 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 smaller, smaller, smaller. And of course, the next time I came back, it was smaller again. No, smaller, smaller. And then I remember, you know, I, I had a tendency to sort of walk around the podium a bit, to, you know, to, to walk to the first and then walk across the cellos. And that stopped in one instance where uh, there was a there was a, a few curse, curse, finished curse words shouted from the audience. And then I felt the podium I stood on lifted up by him and he just <laughs> screamed at me, stand still, you know. And, and but, but you're right, if you took on board what he said, and the things not to do, and started cleaning them up. Then he would he would really help you, um, really help you because he knew that you were interested in what he was saying. And I came away from there much more minimalist. But then from then, you know, around the same time, Andrus Nelsons walked into the CBSO, and I was still playing. I then started to think, well, you know, I've got this. I can do the Yorma stuff now. But now I need to add some other thing. I need to add some more emotion. I need, maybe not quite as much as the young Andres Nelsons, you know. But yeah, you're so right. It's absolutely right what you say. It, that it's a pairing back and make it. The, you've then got a technique that you can resort to when mm. you mm. need clarity or when 
the shit hits the fan and the orchestra's wobbling like hell and you just need to put down a clear four in a bar and show them when it's needed. And Absolutely. And and, yeah. and of course, a, a lot of that is repertoire dependent as well. And I, I, yeah. I do, I've always done a lot of new music, um, often fairly complex new music. And, and you know, that's a completely different thing from <laughs> yeah. conducting, you know, Brahms or whatever with a with, with a professional orchestra. So, yeah. And I, the, other, the other thing that I would, I would say about Yorma that I used to love doing, or maybe get the most from because he would he would often if he if he could he would position himself in the orchestra with the that's right yeah. you know back of the seconds or something between the seconds and the winds um and I I I, I can't remember whether I just worked this out for myself or somebody gave me a tip off but you know go and sit beside him um was the advice because if you sit beside him and of course he's sitting there without a score because um, mm. everything is just in the in in the mind um and you would get this kind of running commentary of what was about to happen in in a bar or two bars time of it okay soon fourth horn sharp okay violas will be late you know and you, get, you just you just get this kind of live um description of the problems of conducting a piece and uh, yeah, yeah. Sort of scribbling scribbling everything down because his you know when it was repertoire that he really knew he, he was sort of so 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 kind of encyclopedic with his knowledge of it and so experienced uh, at seeing it that uh he just knew what was he knew what was going to happen before it happened nine nine and a half times out of ten um wow. and and from that i sort of took and really tried to develop this idea that um you know as conductors one of the things that's that we should be trying to do is is prevent something happening that we know is probably going to happen um and as i say to say to my students often you know nobody's going to come up to you at the break and say oh the the way you stopped the horns being being late there was just absolutely brilliant but what it does is create you more time because if you if you if your if your technique is able to um if your knowledge of the score and and craft of of the orchestra and your technique is able to um prevent something going wrong then of course that means you don't have to stop and talk about it and that just mm. buys you buys you more time and you know to me that's what conducting technique is So true, and the perfect link into um, into what you know, RNCM, Manchester University, and also the RAF. I read as well. You go in and conduct there. So you've just explained. You know, if we can, as conductors, nip things in the bud before they become habitual problems, and you know, by something we do with our technique. But what what other things do you are you hot on? Uh, shall we say, you know, if you look back at, you know, I've asked various Moosin people, it's very much about stick technique. Of course, the famous Hans Swarovski, you know, he did about 15 minutes tops on technique and everything was about score study. So how would you consider what you do? Are you a overall holistic approach? And what's an average week like for your students in Manchester? You know, piano classes, you know, quartets, what do they get up to? Sure, sure. Um, I think in terms of what what I'm kind of hot on is is you know it it, it it is technique in a sense but it's not technique as in this is how you conduct and it's not sort of oh I teach the blah 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 technique I mean yeah. I, don't, I don't buy into that at all um because no. I think every every individual is unique um and why should somebody 
why should somebody who's 19 years old, female and two meters tall conduct the same way as a, a short old man in their eighties? You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It just doesn't, you know, if you're, if you're talking about playing the cello or the violin or the piano or whatever, there's a, there's a common factor, you know, so you can have a, you can have a school of piano playing or a school of cello playing or whatever, right. because there is, there's something that, that unifies everybody, but with conducting, it's not, not really like that. So I think it's, um, I mean, there are certain, very practical things that we always talk about i mean we yeah. always have um you know at, at the point we're speaking we're kind of i think six weeks into the the new academic year um yeah. and our the majority of our students are on a two-year master's program um so uh the uh, and we have a class of 12 so uh one fellow and 11 or 12 master's students so five or six who have just been with us for six weeks um and we always as always in the last few weeks we've always had we've always had the the how to beat in two discussion <laughs> as in <laughs> as in you know make sure that the, that the orchestra can tell the difference between one and two instead of yes. instead of a, a bouncy one which only leaves you the option to do a two that's exactly the same so there, there are certain very practical things like that that come up repeatedly um i i, I think I, I think we also work quite a lot on this sense of you know, when you're conducting it in a class situation, which might be with two pianos or with string quartet and piano or whatever, a small ensemble, um, you've 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 got to be realistic to the the number of people that are there. And then when you stand in front of an orchestra of eighty, you've got you've got to be more energetic. You've got to do more to command the room. So I, yeah. I think I think for me the sort of the smaller gestures, the focusing, the the don't don't thrash around too big sort of thing, um, is is important in that situation where you've maybe got seven or eight musicians in front of you, because then when you have eighty in front of you, well, you actually should do more. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a kind of relative relative energy type type thing, I suppose. Um, but then a lot of really a lot of it is is incredibly practical. You know, can you? You know, we we try to we, we make the students do as wide a variety of repertoire as humanly possible. Um, if they're a string player, more than likely the first thing we'll do is throw them in front of a, a brass band or a wind band. If they're a if they're a, high, a formerly professional horn player, then they'll probably do some string orchestra stuff or something. You yeah. know, so there's there's that kind of thing. Um, tons of new music, um, opera. Uh, stuff with a session orchestra you know as wide a variety of things as possible um in the hope that whichever door happens to open for you you're you're in a position to be able to walk through it because yeah. it's, your chances of doing a, a Brahms cycle in the first few years of your career <laughs> with a professional orchestra are pretty pretty small yes um, so in terms of what a typical week looks like um there's enough for us there's no such thing because every week is totally different um the things that are relatively constant are we generally have two classes a week, um, yeah. Monday and Wednesday mornings. And usually one of those will be with string quintet and two pianos. And the other one will be with two pianos. Um, yeah. We have, I mean, people are divided on the, on how useful piano classes are. Um, it was going to be one of my questions because I've said it so many times. There's a rattle quote about, you know, if you want to conduct, you know, conducting two pianos is only very good if you're going to conduct two pianos. But listening to what you've said and also chatting, as I often did, to Alpesh Chohan, who studied mm. with you in Manchester, he said, and I talked to him about the two piano classes, not on the podcast, just personally, he said, you know, I would use it for a specific technical thing or a, small, a, t a tiny technical thing, knowing that, you know, I'm not going to get the response back of the string section that I'm mm. going to get mm. when I conduct a professional orchestra or when I conduct, you know, another orchestra. And so it's a way of focusing, isn't it, on something specific 
Um, it is, and and uh, uh, I mean, Alpesh is uh, someone I often mention in, in connection with piano classics because he was he was the great thing about Alpesh was that he was basically pretty rubbish when he was conducting two pianos. Then, <laughs> he, he admitted the same to me. And then yeah. when, he, when he stood in front of the orchestra, he came to life. And, yeah. and of course, right. that's that's the right way around. You know, yes. yeah, the yeah. other way around is not so good. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that can be, you know, something I'm very aware of as a teacher is, is you know, it, the, the sort of the, the 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 domain of the two piano class can become the kind of performance output for the teacher sort of thing, and it can get all get a bit kind of a bit a bit irrelevant in a sense um but what you know when, when when we're doing you know and and you know that that's why we we try really to have at least one class a week with strings because that yeah. makes a big difference and and we're we're working as much as possible with professionals so when we have two piano classes uh it's colleagues uh it's not the students having to play for themselves and our kind of our A team, if you like, um, are two unbelievable musicians called Ben Powell and, and Harvey Davis, who have been kind of around the RNCM for for many many years, um, and they've been playing, both been playing in our classes for about twelve or fifteen years. So they're actually incredibly experienced. Um, they ben, know how to react to a beat. They know how to react, and yeah, you know to, yeah. to, to the point that if you know if 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 we're doing Chai Five and and in the slow movement and and the conductor doesn't cue the horn, then they just don't play the horn. You know, so you can say, <laughs> good um, on them. Yeah, you can say, um, okay, guys, uh, let's just you know in a, in a slow Brahms or something. Yeah, just just let's just play behind the beat, shall we? And they go uh, Halley or BBC Phil, <laughs> and they'll, you know, they'll 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 kind of shift as to how far behind. Um, and they can play anything. I mean, we, um, Anthony Hermes is with us this week doing a project with the orchestra. So he he did a class this morning on uh, on Zarathustra. Um, yeah. And Ben Ben and Harvey were playing, and he was he, he uh, Anthony nicknamed them the two beasts because <laughs> they they are so good and so responsive. So in that context, it's useful. Um, yeah. But whether it's them or strings. Um, it's hardly ever that we're doing a piece just for the sake of doing a piece. We're doing a piece because somebody is doing it. Um, yeah. So it's it's preparation for a session with the orchestra the following week, or it's it's preparation for someone doing a competition or whatever. So it's 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 always leading to something. It's not it's not in isolation. Um, so those you know th those are the kind of things that are relatively structured in a sense. Um, and then the students do a lot of conducting. You know we have we have a certain number of days in the year. Uh, which we call repertoire orchestra, um, which is partly about the student players um, learning core repertoire. Because of course, yeah. in, in in conservatoire land, you know the, the RNCM or the Royal College or Birmingham or whatever, you know, Symphony Orchestra, you unlikely to do Dvorak eight <laughs> in a exactly. college orchestra project. Yeah. You know, you yeah. do you know this week they're doing Mahler ten, for example. You know, that's the sort of sort of thing you might do in Shostakovich eight or or whatever. Um, so we use those sessions as a, as a way of just giving the students experience of playing that repertoire um student conductors conducting those so it, it will be a six-hour day with a, an informal concert at the end um we generally use a professional leader for those uh we have a wind tutor in the room so it's a very kind of holistic learning type thing and um you know lynn fletcher or whichever wind tutor is is involved is is feeding back to the conductors as well as me so it's yeah. it's 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 all geared towards um not being too kind of conductor geeky um our basic model at the rncm is that every performance project that happens and we we do a lot um is that uh myself or a colleague or a guest will will be conducting the project and there will be one or sometimes two students on that project conducting a piece so yeah, um yeah so the project uh, tomorrow night with, with Anthony is Mahler 10 and uh, our junior fellow will conduct a short piece at the beginning of the concert before that. That's that's our absolutely typical model. So so they're actually, and that's all about 
giving them the actual experience of rehearsing towards the performance. And in a way, that doesn't matter whether it's a brass band or a wind octet or a cello trio or a new music project or a symphony orchestra or an opera scene or whatever. Um, it's, the, it's that sort of learning how to work kind of thing, um, which probably, you know, if, if, if you think about the sort of feedback that I get from players, you know, about young conductors, you know, they say, well, you know, the thing about your students is that they, they know how to rehearse. Um, whereas a lot of a, a lot of people who've been through conducting programs may be very, very good ones and, and they're very talented and maybe they win a competition, but then they don't actually know what to do for three days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I can, I, I, from what, what you described and what I know also from anecdotally from Alpesh, I can see why it's considered, and I do consider it. And when people ask me, where would I, where should I go and study? I always say RNCM first, end of argument. You know, I've also worked uh, in Glasgow at the RCS and I know that their course is really improving and I've really mm. enjoyed teaching them mm. as well. Mm. But it mm. sounds like the, your conductors have the possibilities to try an awful lot of things. Um, and, 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 uh, just anecdotally to you, when Jonathan Bloxham became the the uh, assistant conductor of the CBSO, I was on the panel and I sifted to, through 201 applications. Um, I never, ever looked at the CV first. I looked at the videos first. And I think I spotted 90% of the people who came from RCM because they just look sorted. They look mm. so really mm. sorted technically. Mm. They weren't all the same by any stretch. Mm. Yep. They look sorted and comfortable in their bodies, and they knew they. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. You know, I'd see a name and think maybe that's an RNCN name, and I think I got it right often. Um, yeah, I think I think I, I think that's you know kind of you to say so, and I, I, yeah. I think that's 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 often the case. And and you know, I, I would be appalled to think that anybody would say, "Oh, I recognise that as one of your students because of how they conduct." No, not so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, say, yeah, I recognise yeah. that as one of your students because they know how to rehearse. Then that's absolutely. <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's that that that's fine. Um, yeah. yeah, and and you know, and we're, we're fortunate that we have a great relationship with the the local orchestras. You know, that's one of the advantages of not being in London, of course. Mm. Um, you know, in in Birmingham, there's CBSO and, and Conservatoire. But, you know, here we're even luckier than that because we have Halley, BBC, Camerata, RLPO just down the road, yeah. open off the other way. Um, so we have um, we have a relationship, a formal relationship with the BBC and RLPO to provide them with assistant conductors because neither of those orchestras have a permanent assistant in the way that CBSO or Halley do. Um, so I've they... benefited from them uh, with both the BBC Philharmonic yeah. and Liverpool. I've had one of, yeah. one of your guys there and, and it really helps. You know, to have somebody in the in there, and also it's just nice to chat about conducting with a young conductor, and it, it, you know they want to pick your brains, but also you know I want to I want to hear from them what they think the orchestra sounds like, and uh, is there anything you would do differently, and you know just have a chat about things. It's good to be open, and that sort of career side of thing and learning how to network and so on is 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 also hugely important. I mean, when I when I saw the the new first years. Um, in the first couple of weeks of term for for a one-to-one -one session you know they, they come in clutching the scores that they know they're doing in the next few days and it's like no 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 that, that, that's for another day you know <laughs> the first question i ask is is what do you think what do you want to be doing in in 20 months time when you walk out of the door here um because mm. now is the time to start thinking about that so the 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 kind of career planning and, and progression and you know talking to them about agents and 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 working out how to network and and that's a great thing about the assisting you know sort of um mm. you know sometimes you know, sometimes some conductors use assistants more than others and sometimes they get it to kind of stand up and conduct for 10 minutes of this time and sometimes they don't whatever they, you know that actually the most important thing is 
is getting to know people and and then perhaps going out for dinner after the mm. concert with the the manager and the agent and the soloists and whatever and 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 you know lots of over the years things have happened from that you know that the, a relationship has has built up between a conductor and a student and then once they graduate they go and assist them somewhere else and then and then that orchestra will will give them a concert or whatever or give them a school's concert um so it, yeah that all, all that side of stuff is is incredibly important as well I have two more things about teaching before we get to the the ever important ten questions, Mark. As I'm sure you know, one of them in Birmingham, I, I'm I, I sort of with the their masters program. I talked to the young conductors, and I've been dealing with two this week because I've got a concert tomorrow night in Birmingham at the Conservatory. And funnily enough, it isn't standard repertoire as it never is. And the students have asked me, "When can we do a Beethoven Symphony, Mike? When can we do a Brahms? You know, tomorrow we're doing Bernstein, Carl Withen, and a and a Erilyn Wallen piano concerto world premiere. You know, just one of them things. But with the students in Birmingham, I have got involved with more of the practical things, like you just said, networking. Mm. They've asked me there, you know, could you take them through some things like how to organise a rehearsal order? Or when you're offered your first date and you're given the symphony and the concerto and you need to find a 20-minute opener, or we want to do this concerto, build a programme around it. Or, you know, uh, the one I do, and I've I've, uh, I've, I've almost, almost like a lecture on it now, is a John Williams night, and you've got one day one day of six hours rehearsal and then the dress, and then you've got the other option, which is the RPO, all done on three hours and see you tonight for the show, that sort of thing. I'm assuming you do those, just those, you know, people would think, well, it's a very boring thing to talk about, but actually in our world, they're really important things to talk about. Absolutely, and, you know, and, and that, you know, that, that stretches from... Uh, you know, the one of the first projects that three of the first years did this year was was what we call our Young Explorers concerts, which is family concerts that we do in the RNCM. Um, so they have a, they had a they had a not quite a, a Liverpool or CBSO rehearsal schedule, but something not far away from it. And they had to yeah. do the whole scheduling thing, and they had to work with the presenter and all that kind of thing. You know, those those are the real world experiences. Um, yeah. But yeah, we have you know we have talks with um, uh, with you know people like Simon Webb from BBC Phil. We have programming sessions i mean my, uh, mike george from bbc is yeah. a great guy for a kind of programming session he is he ever yeah and he just says okay and he just says a piece and says all right then what you what you're going to do with this you know and uh, what should, how can you program around that or or why is this a terrible program and he, he, he gives you three incredibly obscure pieces that are all in c major or something yes, like that yeah 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 sort of knowledge um but yeah all, all of that stuff is is incredibly important and and and, and they have to you know and, and they you know we, we also you know, and one of the other things we do is is farm them out to the the many local amateur orchestras, um, and that's also just really good in terms. Of, and and you know the 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 secretary of whatever local orchestra is like, oh well, you know, do you want me to copy in and everything? No, no, this 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 is about them learning just to deal with you, um, mm. and to and to and for you to get pissed off with them if they don't answer your email. <laughs> yeah. and, and, exactly. And, no, you can't change the rehearsal schedule. And I'm sorry, do you realize that you've put the piece with the only piece with the trombones in it, um, in the wrong part of the day or whatever? You know, all, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, all of that is is yeah. is, is is super 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 important. And that's also something that they learn. 
um, through these assistantships with the yeah. BBC and Liverpool, because they, you know, one of the things we encourage them is, is of course, not just to be with the conductor, um, also to talk to the players, but also to get to know the management. And mm. and especially in the case of the BBC, because they do their final exams with the BBC Philharmonic, lucky them, um, that when they then stand up in front of that orchestra and the orchestra manager walks in and so on, it's not the first time they've met them. And that, mm. you know, that's, that makes a big difference when they're in that, uh, in that situation. Um, it's great when the, you know, the players, the players will wander over to them at the break and say, see what that conductor did then. Never do that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or more recently, I think just before the summer, Andrew, Andrew Davis was, was at the Beeb. Um, and at the, at the first break, uh, about five of the players went over to the assistants and said, see what he did there. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Say good morning, conduct through, um, say two things, play most of it again. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much, everyone. Let's go into the next piece. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if you hear it from players who've been there 25 years, it means something. You know, absolutely. I've said it before. It's a great thing about being an assistant. Get in the TQ. Go and buy somebody a pint afterwards. Ask why that sentence pissed you off or why the orchestra sounds different this week because better than it was last time you were in, you know, and find out. So the players will tell you they're not, it's not a secret that, you yep. know, they're happy yep. to talk about it because they love yep. their orchestra. They, um, they do. And, and, and also what's been really nice to see over the, the, the seven or eight years that we've had this kind of more stronger relationship with them, which, you know, a huge credit to Simon Webb for instigating a lot of that um, is that, you know, an orchestra, which, maybe had a bit of a reputation for being quite tough on young conductors coming in to work with them um usually justifiably so yeah. um you know now that you know because they're a little bit more a part of a process and a little bit more involved in it and they 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 are also used to seeing situations where myself or or my colleague Clark Wondell are, are there with the students um and helping them a little bit in front of the orchestra and so on and they see problems being solved and things getting better and they start to they then start to buy into that and they start to welcome that and they start to see the importance of that rather than the the, the typical situation of um you know which happens so often with BBC orchestras of course because they have so many short patches of work which yeah. doesn't result in a in a public concert of some some agency just trying out a young conductor on a on an orchestra and and everybody knowing from the first minute that it's going to be a disaster but um you know and and, and then understandably it, it, the 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 players don't don't particularly enjoy that so yeah it's, it's 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 great to to see their their generosity and their and their investment in the process of helping them also because unless they did as you and I did, went and studied or you know, put ourselves in masterclasses. What we do sometimes can be a bit of a mystery. And if the, the, if the layers are peeled back and, and players realise, oh, actually conducting is, is quite hard and, and see what, how, what difference that simple piece of body language had upon what I did, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then they become more interested when... A, a great comes in and they could go, oh my God, how, they're doing, you know, and then when there's a young kid comes in, as you said, an agency's mm, pushed in mm, front mm. and you look up, they can look up and say, I, I know why I'm not playing well because of mm, that. Mm. You know, it's not just a beauty contest, which, you know, often before the layers are peeled back, it is a beauty contest. You know, they, people just shouting, oh, I think he's crap or she's awful or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I've never met an orchestra that isn't interested. I did something during lockdown with the CBSA, it was an online thing on Facebook and and I did a basically took about the first 120 bars of Beethoven five and, and talked about what how every beat mattered and what it did if you didn't you know conduct it one way and then the other, and you could see players looking at each other going, I've never thought about that. You just they just sit there and play the notes. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 benefit. 
many situations where you know I've been sort of teaching a masterclass with a professional orchestra or whatever, and, and you know, and then somebody will come up to you at the break and say, "Can I give you a list of conductors? You should say all those things." To me. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> but I think you're, I think you're right because you know, professional players, assuming they've not perhaps dug into conducting very deeply, you know, they'll always know if something's not working. Yeah. Um, and as I often say to the students, you know, you should you should absolutely go with that instinct because that will be almost always totally correct. Yeah. And what they then give you as their suggested solution may not necessarily be. That's <laughs> also know, very true. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, uh, uh, with with a bit of awareness and a bit of involvement in the process, then everyone becomes a little bit more aware of of uh, of how to make it better. Hopefully, so yeah. That's the most important thing is that is the, the, the orchestra plays well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was teaching somebody today and I said, you know, everything you do, it's 100% for the orchestra to play well. Absolutely everything you do. You know, if, if as a byproduct, it, it means that some people in the audience who are watching what you do are interested by it, great. But that is a byproduct only. It's 100% yep. for the orchestra. Yep. There's an 11th question, which every conductor has, has answered. Um, and I wonder whether you... Uh, apply your thoughts on this to your students or whether you leave them much as you do with their, their body shape and how they are formed to, to leave them to their own devices. When you come to learn a new score and you said it and you've done quite a lot of contemporary music as well, how do you go about doing it? Are you a, Do you sit with your inner ear? Do you ever use a piano? And are you a scribbler inner of things? I am a very much a scribbler in. I'm a red, blue, black person and I've got my own work system of doing it. How do you do it, Mark? And because of your wonderful teaching, do you suggest your set, uh, a system of marking in to your students or do you just leave them to do their own thing? Um, okay, so I... I, I probably am a scribbler, although not as much of a scribbler as I used to be. Yeah, I think we're all a bit like that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely one of those people that you, know, yeah. you take something off the shelf that you that you haven't looked at for fifteen years and you put it up and you think, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so yeah, um, I, I do I do like to make markings. Um, I think I'm probably now much better at that, and in that I try to only mark things that I want to notice when I'm actually yes. standing there conducting. Um, Particularly, of course, if it's new music, then you know some sort of system for all the meters and so on is 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 important. And I I do kind of teach teach that you yeah. know, the, sort of a process of marking up an, an incredibly complicated contemporary score that's changing meter all the time. Um, how do I go about it? Uh, I'm I'm a dreadful piano player, so that's rarely a thing that I do. You know, occasionally I might just try a few chords or whatever. Um, I tend I tend to just I mean I, I do listen to recordings. Um, think anybody who says that they that they don't is is a liar um, <laughs> I, I try to I, I try to listen to recordings you know in an ideal situation I try to listen to recordings really at the very beginning of the process and then stop um yeah. I absolutely try to listen to some recordings that I think I might not like um mm. it's, it's certainly a variety um so I, I I I do that. Um, I absolutely don't sit and conduct along to the recording. I think that's no. that's that's really not a good idea. Um, and one sees that. Um, my great friend and colleague Nicholas Pasquet, the, the conducting teacher in Weimar. You know, he just goes YouTube conducting because <laughs> 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 of course you can spot it straight. Yeah, in, of course right you away. can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, th I think you know, for me, because I do. I mean, I I, I don't I, I'm not I don't conduct as much now because i'm teaching so much more um i still conduct quite a lot but you know yeah. if you go back five or six years i was i was conducting really a lot and very often 
you know, with all several things overlapping at the same time and some, you know, short professional type projects within three days and some things that were spread over two weeks or longer or whatever. So I, I, I very often had really a lot of scores on the go um, at the one time. Um, so, so for me, what was very important was, was, was having a process which just starts big and goes small um, mm. so that you can, you know, well, if you've got, if you've got six months to study something or you've got, six minutes to study something you can still manage um, yeah. so start starting with the the you know going through the whole piece really quite quickly and and doing the bare minimum to mean that you can get away with it if that's what you have to do and then and then carry on going uh, more and more and more so I, I think that's probably the probably the main main thing i would say um yeah i mean I, I i sometimes you have quite involved conversations with students about that but i think you know, by the by the time somebody gets to the level of getting into our course, then they they sort of know that already in a way. So it's yeah. it's not it's not not often probably to be honest, not not something we often talk about actually. Yeah. At this point, I asked Mark his views on whether it was necessary to be a good pianist to become a great conductor. This was a question I felt needed answering after discussing it in episode eighty with George Jackson and with another conducting teacher whose episode I have yet to release. You can hear this short discussion on my Patreon page as a bonus mini-episode. As well as these bonus mini-episodes, you will find interviews, articles, discussion topics, and that it is a great place to discover much more about what a conductor does. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Mark Heron. Mark, it is unavoidable. It is the 10 questions which every conductor has answered since episode 2. In fact, I even answered them in episode 1, so there we go. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um sound i love would be probably the sea uh sound i hate probably i'm going to say boris johnson's voice <laughs> brilliant first person to mention boris johnson i did have donald no no i lie uh she didn't say holly matheson didn't say donald trump she said the sound of american politics which is a, <laughs> a, a very good cop out but i know what she meant brilliant answer um if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing uh, probably playing golf. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, are you good? I'm not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, th I think 10, so. Yeah. Oh, well, I know you are good, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think you and Michael Francis have given the same answer. The the ex bass player, LSO bass player. I gave up golf when I started playing cricket again because I promised my wife that I would do one all day sport, not two in a week. <laughs> so you know, until until I give up cricket, I won't go back to golf. Uh, but I, I used to love it. I, I, you know, I used to love the walking. I, the frustration of how bad I was wasn't good. But you know, what a great way to spend a day. I absolutely well, it's, it's, it's the ideal sport for our, our lifestyle, wasn't it? Because you um, you can go and play whenever you whenever you're free. <laughs> absolutely. Question number four: Who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? I think because I'm I'm always just so impressed by conductors that are admired by orchestras so i'm probably going to go maris jansen's mm. yeah absolutely yeah i think most orchestras absolutely loved him uh very very good choice um 
question five is considered harder by some conductors. Others haven't found it hard at all. And question five is, who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? And other people have gone repertoire specific on this if you wish to. Yeah, I, I think it really it really is repertoire specific for me. Um, yeah. There are... There are there are certain conductors that I would I would admire in in some music uh, that I wouldn't even bother bringing up on YouTube for for other pieces. Um, but probably just because he was such an influence on me um, when I was starting out, I'd, I'd probably say Pavel Yervi. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, probably a few things for different reasons. Um, in a kind of difficulty, just complexity sense. Uh, piece by. English composer called Philip Grange, who, who used to be the head of composition at, at Manchester University. He was a, a student and disciple of, of Max. Um, right. And he a uh, piece called The Kingdom of Bones, which was unbelievably difficult. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, from a kind of dramatic or emotional or, or kind of personal sense, I suppose, I, I, I remember doing um, Rachmaninoff's symphonic, uh, symphonic dances uh with an orchestra and their their number two violinist had died two weeks before the rehearsal started. Um, oh so god! That, that tune in the first movement that was, oh. that was that was quite 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 something. So that 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 sticks in my mind. Um, I used to find you know when I, and and this was something that helped me technically. Um, when I was kind of starting out and doing amateur orchestras, I did. I was the conductor of the Liverpool Mozart Orchestra for for a number of years. Um, so I did a lot of classical repertoire. Uh, and I I used to I used to well remember the feeling of just being knackered halfway through the finale of a Beethoven symphony <laughs> and getting getting over that and finding a way of, of pacing myself um was 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 a was a good lesson it's the sort of you know in, in physically in a way the sort of relentlessness of something like that is so much more difficult than a Mahler symphony I think from a, mm. from a physical perspective yeah absolutely true I remember almost exactly the similar situation when I realized I have to do something about my conducting technique technique and it was around the time that Zachary had suggested going to Yorma. The first time I conducted Walton One in a concert, I remember getting to the end of the first movement of Walton One in a concert and thinking, well, that's it. I'm knackered. How on earth am I going to get through the rest of this piece? And that's when I realised I've got to do something about this, you know, uh, because I, there's no way I can have a professional career can carry on conducting like this. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a good feeling when you realise no. you've got nothing left, is it? <laughs> exactly. And you've got three movements to go. I mean, that was that was the problem. The first half wasn't even that difficult. It was Malcolm Arnold dances and the Elgar Chelikinger. So it wasn't sure. the first half that killed me. It was the first move to Walton one. Yeah. Um, when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Uh, probably some form of knowing where the best restaurants are. Are you a trip advisory person or a book or a? Um, uh, yeah, I kind of used to be. I've probably gone off trip advisor a little bit. I, I probably try and sort of Google restaurant uh, newspaper restaurant reviews or or yeah. kind of Time Out magazines weekend and wherever kind of kind of type thing. Um, or just talk to the locals. But uh, yeah, always always good to know where's where's good to eat. I think. And is that something you tell your students that, you know, the meal for one, make sure you take a book with you or, or, yeah. you, or an iPad. I mean, it is, it yeah. is one of one, it is, does bring you back down to earth after a great day's rehearsal, you walk out, nobody talks to you, you go and have a meal for one. It brings you right back down to earth, doesn't it? It does, but I, I, I don't know. I, 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 in a way, I quite like that in a, in a sense, but, um, but yeah, you're not, you're not there to party with the orchestra. That's, no. Uh, <laughs> that's no. <the> <laughs> no, exactly. Um, yes. Uh, we're, um, 
I don't think I use it very often because it's, it's now easier to get good coffee, but one of those apps that tells you where good coffee can be found is also also quite helpful, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Number eight. We're rattling through them. Uh, anything you like, real or fantasy, serious or not. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Probably the fact that lots of people in the orchestras that you conduct generally don't like conductors as a breed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know that's conductors to blame for that often <laughs> yeah that's true yeah i mean I've, I've tried to get to the bottom of this because i was one of them you know i joined an orchestra when i was basically 21 22 didn't do anything about conducting until i don't know mid to late 20s by the time i was 32 i really was starting to conduct amateur orchestras and by the time i was 35 i was assistant conductor of the orchestra i was in and so by then in 13 years my attitude had completely flipped but I'm trying to work out really why this hatred. It can't all be down to the fact that, you know, a conductor can earn more in one night than a player can earn in a month, can it? I mean, I suppose it's just down to a figure of authority. That's what it's down to. Yeah, maybe. For some I, I, people. I think, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's just the feeling that, that often the, the conductor is not doing their job as well as the players are doing their job. And, and, yeah, and, therefore, yeah. and therefore there can be resentment for the fact that you're being paid 10 times more than the players are. Um, yeah. And that's, that's fair enough, I think, isn't it? But... Yeah, I, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. I do remember one conductor saying to me, not on this podcast, just in a private conversation, you know, there were times, there, you know, there were times when he thought he conducted far worse than the orchestra played, but he, then there were other times when he thought the, he conducted far better than the orchestra played, you know, and, <laughs> it, it, it can be like that sometimes, you know, and th the point is that we're all human beings and therefore, you know, that can happen. But yeah, some people uh, start from a standpoint of, I hate you, you've got to convince me otherwise, where many players now, and I think that the attitude has got so much better since I st first started playing in 1991, yep. more people are more open about conductors now, Yep. Uh, and are willing to give them longer than the walk from the door to the podium, <laughs> which you know, I knew. I knew some people who you know, the minute they saw them, oh, I don't like him. You know, oh, that, that, that was the case. But yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's also probably because most most of the people that are standing in front of orchestras at the beginning of their careers are probably just a bit better than they were twenty years ago. You know, so that's, you know, the sort of there's a sort of basic level of competence. You know, the, yeah. the the, the the education of conductors is is you know a lot a lot it's a lot more comprehensive in a sense than than it, than it was thirty years ago I think so you know that probably helps it's very true and you've got a lot of uh, of thanks to be taken for that for yeah. that being the case absolutely true I agree with you I totally agree with you number nine real or fantasy if you you know you wanted to be a captain of Scotland's football team or you know a professional golfer but what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have had a go at uh pro probably professional sport in some sense um i uh now i play golf I, I used to play cricket when i was young even though i'm scottish um i was quite i was very into sailing at one point so it, it would have been it would have been professional sport of of some kind i'm sure um, yeah. it would have been what i'd have liked to do yeah another one i can add to my fantasy list of get, getting a box at lords and inviting i think i could probably fill a box of 10 now uh we're going to have a day out 10 conductors in a box watching cricket that could be interesting what could possibly go wrong <laughs> exactly <laughs> number 10 if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink uh probably 
well, it'd be a toss-up between a Negroni and a Martini to start mm. with. Lovely. Um, and then it would be probably seafood of some kind, uh, prawns or lobster or something like that, perhaps. Main course would be good beef, probably a rib of beef on the bone or something like that. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and a, 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 a fine red. Uh, yeah. Perhaps Rhone or uh, Italian, perhaps, probably would be the would be the thing i'm not a massive i'm i'm, I'm fairly ambivalent about desserts so I, i'd probably just be happy with that and then drink the rest of the wine and maybe have a bit of cheese with it so yeah sounds very good to me though i have got a, a very sweet tooth and i probably would have a pudding uh and then go on to the port and the cheese and everything else but that, that sounds wonderful uh, a cocktail a fish course a beef yeah i'm with you absolutely with you uh and talking of being with you I really do seriously wish I could turn the clock back because I think I would have loved to have gone and done two years masters in Manchester with you and study conducting. I started way too late, but I, you know, I wished I could have done that. And it's been fascinating listening to you talk about it. And I've learned an awful lot and I hope our listeners have too. So thank you, Mark. And I hope to speak to you again very soon. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a German conductor who went through the famous German Kapellmeister system, holding positions at six different theatres. She has subsequently gone on to become principal guest conductor of the Lati Symphony Orchestra in Finland, and in 2021, she became chief conductor of the Residenti Orchestra in The Hague. But until then, bye-bye.